please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. God willing, this will be the last time I say that for quite a while. We're going to read verses 46 to 53 of Luke 24. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Well, let's look to God and ask for his help in prayer as we come to this last brief section of Luke's gospel this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this gospel according to Luke. We thank you for the wonderful portrait it paints for us of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this encouraging, triumphal note on which this gospel concludes. Open our eyes to understand more about our Savior as we look at this passage today. And bring the gospel of Jesus Christ home with power to everyone listening who does not know our Savior. Bring them to saving knowledge of your Son this very day. Hear our prayers, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was ten years and 231 sermons ago that I preached my first message from Luke chapter 1. I have learned over the course of these 10 years to love Luke as an author. But I trust that even more, I have come to love the one he wrote about more and more, our Lord Jesus. I hope that's true of all of us. But if not, I hope, as I prayed, that it will still become true today as you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ once again. Today, we have the account of Jesus ascending into heaven. Our focus is upon verses 50 to 53, these last four verses of Luke's gospel. And we'll begin by noticing the prelude, and that is in verse 50, the prelude, if you will, to Luke's ascending, excuse me, to Jesus ascending to heaven. It says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. In Luke 24, we have the account of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Then we have the account of Jesus appearing to two disciples as they walked away from Jerusalem, sadly, because their Savior had died. They were walking back to the town of Emmaus, where it seems that one of them lived. And then Jesus, after he spent some time with them, and he was even eating a meal with them, he appeared again in Jerusalem that night. The Sunday, the day on which he rose from the dead, he appeared at night 
to the apostles and other disciples as they were together in Jerusalem. And he showed them that it was really he and that he really had risen from the dead. And then we have uh, in verses 44 and following some words that he spoke to them, probably not on that same night, though you could get that impression as you read from verse 43, where it speaks about him eating a piece of fish that night with the apostles in that upper room. But verses 44 and following occur, verses 44 through 49, uh, sometime after that, there were 40 days that Jesus was still walking on this earth, appearing and then disappearing again to his disciples. And finally, we come to this last section in verses 50 and following, where we have his ascension. And here is the prelude in verse 50, that they went out as far as Bethany. So it begins with a walk to Bethany. We had a walk to Emmaus uh, some weeks ago that we looked at, but now a walk to Bethany. And this is a walk that made me think of the walk to Jericho and then across the Jordan River that Elijah and Elisha walked many centuries before. It's recorded back in 2 Kings chapter 2, and you know the details of that. And as we'll see, there wasn't the angst that existed in the heart of Elisha and some of the other prophets on that day. There wasn't the dread, there wasn't the anxiety about the fact that Elijah was leaving it's a different walk. Jesus' ascension itself is not as dramatic as Elijah's. It wasn't preceded by those tense conversations. There were not chariots of fire. There was not a whirlwind like for Jesus to go up in like Elijah went up in a whirlwind. It was all much more peaceful and calm, so to speak, far less dramatic. It mentions the location here. It says that he led them out as far as Bethany. And some writers in commenting on Luke and on Acts chapter 1 say, well, there's a discrepancy here. Because in Acts chapter 1 and verse 12, we're told that Jesus was on the Mount of Olives and he ascended from the Mount of Olives. But there really is no discrepancy there. Look back with me at Luke chapter 19 for a moment. Luke chapter 19 and verse 29. And notice what we read. This is when Jesus was heading toward Jerusalem for his last visit to Jerusalem. And it says that uh, in verse 29, It came to pass when he came near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, and so on. You can see the instructions that he gave them. The point is this, that Bethany was at Mount Olivet. It was on the slope of the mountain. So if you look at Luke 19, verse 29, and especially if you take out a map along with that, maybe the map in the back of your Bible, or you're looking at a Bible atlas or something like that, you can find that Bethany is on the southeastern slope of what's called here Mount Olivet or the Mount of Olives, the other name by which we know it, so that you can see there is no conflict here whatsoever. One commentator said it would be legitimate to translate the Greek here that he led them out right to the neighborhood of Bethany. So you could be at Bethany and on the Mount of Olives at the same time. You might not be on the uh, summit of the mountain, but it's on that mountain. And it doesn't say in any place that Jesus was at the summit of the mountain. So there's no conflict here. So the first part of the prelude is a walk to Bethany, or we could say a walk to Mount Olivet. And then secondly, we have a divine benediction. 
And a benediction is a blessing. You see how it says it. He led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. We're told in Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 22 that Aaron, the high priest, lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and peace offering. So that both in biblical times and even to this day, when someone lifts his hand or lifts his hands, it is a sign that he may be blessing someone. Or when he's blessing someone, that is a gesture that was often done when someone was blessing someone. It's done to this day in churches where benedictions come at the end of a service of worship. Sometimes benedictions are simply spoken. Sometimes they are spoken along with uplifted hands. That's what Jesus was doing. He was pronouncing a blessing on the disciples that were there. We don't know exactly how many disciples were there. At least the 11 apostles were there. Perhaps many more. Perhaps the company was the 120 who kept gathering together in the upper room. We just don't know that for sure. But upon all that were there, all of his disciples that were there, Jesus spoke this blessing. And we don't know what words he used, but perhaps it was something along the lines of what we call the Aaronic blessing, the blessing of Aaron that we find in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and so on. In this case, because it was Jesus pronouncing the blessing, it wasn't just a pronouncement or a wish that they would be blessed. It was an actual bestowal of a blessing. That's why I called this a divine benediction, because it was the Lord himself who was pronouncing the blessing. You might wish a blessing upon someone, you might pronounce a blessing, but you cannot bestow the blessing upon them. It's kind of like preaching. I can preach the Word of God. I'm called by God to do it, but I'm simply the means or the agent that God calls to do that. I can't get inside your heart. I'm not like the Holy Spirit. I can't, through the preaching of the Word, change your heart and change you from death, spiritual death, to spiritual life. God can. And so Jesus was not just pronouncing a blessing here. He was actually bestowing a blessing upon his disciples. So there's the prelude to his ascension to heaven. And then let's look at the ascension itself. And that we find in verse 51. It says, Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up, into heaven. This is what we call the ascension. What a wonderful event. But again, Luke just has one sentence, one brief verse to describe this glorious, glorious event. We call it the ascension. We sang about it in the last hymn we sang. It was in the section of our hymnal that was entitled The Ascension. And in our hymn, we sang how Jesus ascended. Children, do you know what this means? Ascension. It's a big word. And really, it's just a big word or a fancy word that means go up. That's what ascend means. It means go up. So sometimes we talk about ascending the stairs. It means we're going up the stairs. Or if someone is climbing a mountain, sometimes we say he's ascending the mountain. That's all ascension means. It means a going up. And ascend means to go up. Now when Jesus went up to heaven, it was different from when Mr. Simmons, a member of our church who died recently, he went up to heaven. We all believe that because he was a Christian. Or we spoke about and prayed for a pastor who recently, we believe, went up to heaven as well, ascended to heaven. But we believe his soul ascended to heaven, not his body. Jesus went up to heaven alive. That's what the ascension is, just like Elijah did so many centuries ago. Jesus ascended to heaven, and he is still there.
there. We're told in Acts chapter 3 and verse 21 that heaven has received him until the times of restoration of all things. So Jesus is in heaven now. And he's going to be there until what the Bible calls in Acts chapter 3 the restoration of all things. That is, making everything new again. In other words, it's saying one day Jesus is going to come back from heaven and he's going to call his people to himself and he's going to judge all people and he's going to make everything in this world new. And then heaven, the dwelling place of God, will come down onto this earth and earth will be the new dwelling place of God. And that's why we call it the new heavens and the new earth. But until then, Jesus is remaining in heaven. And you might think, well, what is he doing there? Well, we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. But that's the ascension. Jesus went up to heaven where he still is now. And let's notice a couple of things about the ascension as we see Luke's description of it in verse 51. Let's first notice the timing of it. That's at the beginning of the verse. It says, Now it came to pass... While he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. So as I said, when he blessed them, he was speaking words. Maybe it was like the words that Aaron was to speak in Numbers chapter 6. The high priest was to speak. The Lord bless you and keep you. He might have said those very words. We just don't know. He had given them all the instruction he needed to give them. Now he was pronouncing a blessing upon them. And remember, it says, as he did, he lifted up his hands. So Jesus had his hands lifted up, and it says, while he blessed them, he was parted and carried up into heaven. So Jesus' hands would have been raised and stretched out probably like this, something like this. And he would have been speaking as he started rising and going into heaven. That was the last view that the apostles, the disciples of our Lord, had from him as he left this world. And he was pronouncing that blessing, and there's a sense in which we could say that was the last view that the apostles had from him, and the last words they heard from his lips were words of blessing, the words of a benediction. And I believe... Part of the significance of that, because God could have let Jesus finish his blessing before he took him away from their sight, but it's possible, some writers say that this is the case, it's very possible that God took him up while he was blessing them so it would be fixed in their minds that that was what Jesus was doing when he left, And that is an indication of his constant disposition toward them still. So there was a timing of his ascension. And secondly, let's notice the taking. The taking. Couldn't think of a better word to express what I'm trying to say. But that's in verse 51b. That while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And I use the word taking to emphasize the fact that both of the verbs here, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. They're both passive verbs. They don't say he left them and went up into heaven. Those would be active verbs emphasizing that Jesus was the subject. But when we have passive verbs, they're emphasizing in a sense that Jesus was an object. He was taken from them And he was carried up into heaven. He could have done it his own way and and simply um, left with them and gone up into heaven by his own strength. He is God after all. But it says he was parted and he was taken or carried up into heaven. Similar to the statement that we have about Jesus' ascension in 1 Timothy 3.16. We won't look at that verse right now, but one of the statements there is that he was taken up into glory. So that's why I use this language, the taking. 
the taking of Jesus in his ascension. I don't know exactly why it says it that way and why he was taken rather than simply he went. Perhaps there's an indication here, we don't know this, of a desire within Jesus' heart to remain with them. I do not mean in any way that he went against his will. He knew it was time for him to go to heaven. He knew it belonged there. He wanted to be there. But we could say, in a sense, he wanted to be with his disciples as well. I think of Paul saying in, first, uh, in, in Philippians chapter 1, he says that he, was, he had a hard decision. He, he didn't know really if he wanted to stay on this earth or if he wanted to depart and be with Jesus, because that's far better. He finally concluded, I think it's better for me, at least at this time, to remain with you for a while, because I can preach to you, I can teach you, I can do some work here and accomplish some good. We know that Jesus had, in a sense, conflicting desires in his soul from the night before he died, don't we? He prayed that the Father would take the cup from him, but on the other hand, he came into the world to die. And he wanted to do the will of his father. Well, it may be that there was that kind of a thing going on. We don't know that. Uh, I guess I could say I speculate. But regardless, Jesus went up to glory speaking a blessing. He was taken up to glory. And so as he went up to heaven speaking words of blessing, there's a sense in which we could say the apostles, as they saw him and they listened to him, had words that they heard that they could savor for the rest of their days. It often happens when people die, those who are with them speak about their last words. And sometimes they do so with great fondness. They're thankful they were there to hear the last words. And they think about those words over and over again. And the apostles would have been thinking about the words of blessing as Jesus was taken right while he was speaking the words of blessing. And of course, Jesus died. It was very significant. And he rose from the dead. That was very significant. And he had spoken about that repeatedly during the course of his public ministry. Well, there were at least some earlier hints in Jesus' public ministry that this day was coming as well. Let's just look back at a couple of them in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. This is a verse that I've reminded you of, either turned you back to it or spoken of it and repeated it a number of times over the course of uh, these months and years. That's where it says, It came to pass, Luke 9.51, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And notice the language there. When the time had come for him to be received up. That's probably talking about his death. But it's also talking about this moment. He's being received up into glory. And back earlier in the same chapter, look at verse 30 and verse 31. This was on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was transfigured, his appearance was changed in the presence of three of the apostles. And we read here, Then behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And it says there, where it says decease, it says it's as if he was speaking about his death. But then in my Bible, it says in the margin, it says literally, departure, going away. It's interesting because Moses was one of the men there. And the word is literally the word, if we transliterated it, it would be his exodus, which means departure. So there's that, pointing to the fact that Jesus was leaving, not just in death, but in his ascension. And isn't it interesting also that the other Old Testament saint was there, who was there was Elijah, who also went up to heaven alive. 
as Jesus did on this occasion. One commentator wrote, The goal and destiny toward which Jesus has been resolutely moving, he set his face toward this moment, if you will, yes, toward his death in Jerusalem, but it was also set toward his exodus and his being received up into glory. The goal and destiny toward which Jesus has been resolutely moving have now been reached. Let's turn to that passage I mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. This is a text that speaks about Jesus' entire earthly ministry and even beyond it. And it summarizes it in a poetic form. This was a poem. Perhaps it was some kind of a hymn in the early church. We don't know that for sure. But we read this in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 3. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then Paul summarizes this mystery of godliness by um, explaining the major events of Jesus' life and work. God was manifest in the flesh, manifested in the flesh, that's the incarnation, justified in the Spirit. There's every reason to believe that's his resurrection. And then, seen by angels, and that may well be his ascension. If you read Acts chapter 1 and read about the angels who were present there and appeared to the apostles, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, that's what the apostles did after Jesus ascended to heaven. They went out and carried out that great commission we've been looking at in recent weeks, and then believed on in the world, received up in glory. And that's why I use this language, he was taken. He was taken up or received up in glory. He was seen by angels. And then there's that language there, he was justified in the Spirit. Justified means that he was vindicated. Jesus spoke about the fact that he was going to rise from the dead. And we just saw in Luke chapter 9, he also was speaking as well about his ascending into heaven, his being received up, his exiting this world. And that's what he did on this day we're looking at, at the end of Luke chapter 24. And when that happened for Jesus, when he did the thing he said he did, was going to do, when he crowned his gory work of dying with his glorious work of rising and then ascended, ascending, he was being vindicated. God was vindicating him. When he was, we rose up by the power of the Holy Spirit, that was his justification, we could say. He spoke about great things that he was going to do. And he was mocked for it, wasn't he? But now he has the last laugh, if you will. One commentator said this about Jesus' resurrection and now his ascension here at the end of Luke 24. He said, These are a vindication of Jesus, for they represent the fulfillment of the prediction he made at his trial that from now on, the Son of Man would be seen at the Father's right hand. Back in Luke 22 and verse 69, he spoke this in front of the Sanhedrin at his trial, the Jewish council, the religious leaders, and he said, hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And that's where Jesus was ascending to at this moment. Scripture says he was crucified in weakness, but he has now been raised up in glory, and he has been exalted to the highest place in the universe, the right hand of his Father. He was humbled while he was on this earth. He was humbled by sinners. He was mocked by them. He was spat upon. He was whipped. He was crucified. He was humbled, and he was humble. In other words, he allowed men to do all that to him. As Peter says to us, like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter 
and he opened not his mouth. But while men despised him, God embraced him. And the resurrection and the ascension make that point. Another commentator, Joel Green, says, God's verdict reverses and supersedes the verdict of those who rejected, condemned, and executed Jesus. This is a vindication of our Lord. Peter said in Acts 5 and 30, verse 31, speaking again to the Jewish leaders, Him, that is Jesus, God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior. So Christ ascends to heaven. He is now in glory. As it says in 1 Timothy 3.16, He is taken up in glory. And as I said, you children, you might wonder, well, what is he doing there? Well, I have five answers for you. I'll try to make it brief. Five answers. Number one, he's blessing us. He's blessing his people. He left in the posture of blessing, and we can say he is still in the posture of blessing. Whether his hands are up or not, he is pronouncing blessing, and he is effecting blessing upon his people here on this earth. That is his disposition toward us, and that is what he is doing. He is always blessing his people. That is always his disposition toward us. He may lead us through difficult trials. He may bring them into us for our good. But he does it for a purpose. And he has a disposition of kindness toward us and blessing toward us. It was an early token of that reality when 10 days later, after he ascended, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover on which he died, 50 days later, he sent his Holy Spirit to his apostles and to his church. He was blessing them, and he is still blessing us today with one blessing after another after another. That's what he's doing there, first of all. He's blessing his people. Secondly, and this goes along with us, with that, he's interceding for us. He's interceding for us. And intercession includes a couple of things. Number one, it means he's representing us before the throne of his Father. We read in Hebrews 9 and verse 24, it was the text printed at the top of the last hymn that we, we sang. It says, Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. He's there for us, if you will. We like to say that. And we just say, you know, we're thinking about you. We'll be ready to help you. It's really true of Jesus. He is there for us, his people. That is, he's there to represent us. Listen to what it says in the Westminster Larger Catechism about this element of what we call Jesus' intercession for his people. It says, he appears in our nature, that is, as a real man. So he appears there in our nature. He represents human beings. So that's one of the reasons it's important that he's still a human being, and he's in his human form there in heaven. He appears in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth. So on this earth, he obeyed his Father, and then he laid down his life for his people, and now he's representing us there as the one who did those things in our place while he was on the earth. We sing about that in one of our hymns. My advocate appears, that is, the one who stands in my place, the one who argues for me, who represents me. My advocate appears for my defense on high. The Father bows his ears and lays his thunder by. Not all that hell or sin can say shall turn his heart, his love, away. And it's trying to give this kind of a picture. As if, if the Father were tempted 
because of our sins that we still commit as Christians, to give us a little thunder, a little thunder and lightning and condemn us because of our grievous sins, he never does. And here's part of the rationale. Because my advocate is there. And so the Father, when he listens to what my advocate has to say, he lays his thunder by. Because Jesus is always in heaven, Christian, representing you. The Father will always lay his thunder by, no matter what your sins are. If you are his child, he may chastise you, but he will never blow you away like he will the wicked in the day of judgment. As the scripture says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because of what he did on the cross, but also because of what he's doing right now, standing before the Father, reminding you of what he did on this earth, what he did on the cross, saying, Father, I suffered for him. I suffered for her. And I obeyed in her place. And I obeyed in his place. The father looks at that and listens to that. And he is not only satisfied with what his son has done in the place of his people, he is abundantly satisfied. And he lays his thunder by. So he represents us there. That's part of his work of intercession. But he also prays for us. I think that's what it means as well when it says he intercedes for us. It's interestingly that it's interesting that there's a theological debate about this among um, reformed theologians, and it's a it's not a, a fight. It's just a debate. Some say, well, they don't think Jesus actually prays for us there because it's not really consistent with his exalted position. And it's not like when he was in Gethsemane, in in a sense, uh, in agony, praying with tears that had blood mixed with him eventually. And that's kind of demeaning, they say, that thought that our, our Savior would actually be doing that in heaven while he's in glory. And I say, well, it's not demeaning if he's not praying like that. And I say, he can pray, and there's no reason why he wouldn't pray. And so I think he does pray. And that's part of his intercessory work as well. Just like he did when he was with uh, his apostles, and he said on that night before he died, to all the apostles, Satan has asked that he might sift you all as wheat. And then he looks at Peter and he tells him that he's going to get a special sifting And it's going to end up with him denying Jesus three times. But he says, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith will not fail. And his faith did not fail. Because the Father answered Jesus' prayers for his own. And the the Father is answering all of Jesus' prayers for every one of us, his people. He prays for you when you need it most. And he prays for what you need the most. His prayers are not necessarily exactly what your prayers are when you're in trouble. But his prayers are much wiser and better than yours. And every one of them is answered by the Father. So what is Jesus doing in glory? He's blessing us. He's interceding for us. Third, he's ruling for us. Think of Jesus' words in the um, Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus starts that Great Commission by saying, All authority has been given to me. In other words, I've done all the Father asked for me to do. I've, ri- I've died, and I've risen, and I'm about to ascend. So all authority, because I did what the Father told me I had to do, All authority has been given to me. I've accomplished my work. Calvin says, Christ was not received into heaven to enjoy a blessed state of rest far from us, but to stand guard over the world for the salvation of all the godly. He's not just there to rest and say, now I've done my work. 
we sang it three times in the hymn. We sang, all his work is ended. Well, it's true in one way. All his earth, earthly work is ended. All his gory work is ended. But he has heavenly work to do. Interceding for us, ruling for us, guarding over us, as Calvin says. Let's notice what the Scripture says about this in Ephesians 1, verses 20 and following. Ephesians 1, verses 20 and following. Paul is writing here. It's a long sentence, so I'm not going to go back to the beginning of it. In verse 19, he speaks of the great power that God works in us with. And it says it's the same power, verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So that's where Jesus is now, in that place of great prominence and authority. And then verse 22 says, And he, that is the Father, put all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he is ruling over everything in this universe for the good of the church, for the good of every one of his people. He's causing everything that happens in this world to work out in the best way for his people so that every one of them will be finally saved no matter what trials they go through in this life. And they will all be brought together one day in glory with him to be with him forever and ever and ever. So he's blessing us. He's interceding for us. He's ruling for us. He's not just ruling over us. He's ruling over everything for us. And then fourth, he's being present with us. Jesus' words at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28 were, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, at the moment when he's ready to depart from the apostles, he says to them, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So even though he's there, far away from us, bodily, he's present with us, really and spiritually, through the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, let's go back to John 16. John chapter 16. Excuse me. Verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. So he's saying, even though I'm going away, it's going to be better that I'm gone, because I'm sending the Spirit. And because of the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit, it will be better for Jesus to be away in part because he's still going to be present. That's how he fulfills this promise. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. William Hendrickson said this, he departed from us in order to draw closer to us, to dwell within us in a peculiar way as he does through the Holy Spirit. So we should keep this in mind all the time, all the time, whether we are engaging in the work of evangelism or disciple-making like Jesus was talking about there in Matthew 28, he's with us always. Or whether we are gathering in church like we hope to do again here before very long, where he, as he says, if two or three are gathered, I am there in the midst. He's present with us, even though he's in heaven or whether it is our most solitary and lonely times that we experience in our life, times of suffering and sadness. He is with His people. All the time He is with us. And it's at those times, brethren, isn't it, that we most peculiarly know and acutely sense 
the presence of Jesus Christ, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when I am weak, then I am strong. Therefore, I rejoice in infirmities. Why? Because it is then that I know the reality of the power of Jesus Christ tabernacling over me and upon me and with me. Jesus is present with us. And then fifthly and finally, he's waiting for us. He's waiting for us. Look over at John chapter 17 for a moment. First of all, he's waiting for us to come to him. John 17, verse 4 and 5 is the beginning of Jesus' prayer here. The night before he went to the cross, he says, I have glorified you on the earth. He's praying to his Father. I've finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he was praying that he might go back to be with his Father. But also look at verse 24 near the end of that prayer. He prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me. And that would be the apostles. And that that would be also all who would believe in him. I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's another thing Jesus is doing. He is waiting for us to come to him. He said back in chapter 14 of John that he was going to prepare a place for his people and that he would one day come and receive his people to himself. He is praying for us that we might be with him, whether that he would bring us to himself at our death or for this next thing, he's waiting for us to come and dwell with us. As I said last week, there are going to be some people who will never experience death in this world. They will be taken up to be with Christ and then come back to this earth and reign with Him. And we read about that in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. The first four verses there. It says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there also there was no more sea. Then I saw, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Jesus is waiting for us waiting for us to come to him, waiting for to come himself to dwell with us on this earth. That's what he's doing. He's not doing nothing. He's not twiddling his thumbs like maybe many people are doing during this lockdown. He's not watching Netflix. He's watching us. And he's working on our behalf. So there's the prelude, there's the ascension, and then we have the epilogue, verses 52 and 53. Luke 4, sorry, Luke 24, beginning at verse 52. And they worshipped him. So they saw him go up. In other words, as he went up, they worshipped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. So I've broken it down this way. And I, I call this an epilogue. Just an epilogue is a closing section added on to something, maybe a book, maybe a play maybe a movie, provides further comment, further information for the reader or the, the viewer. We, we see that in movies sometimes where the movie comes to an end and then we maybe read something and maybe see their pictures about what some particular real-life characters did in following years. Well, here it's what they did in the following days, several days. 
says they worshipped him. Then they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. First of all, they worshipped. They worshipped him. As he went up, they worshipped. And they continued to worship Jesus the Christ. Calvin says the apostles lost their hesitation. In other words, prior to the resurrection and now the ascension, they, they weren't bowing down to Jesus. They weren't singing hymns of praise to him. Now they're worshiping him as the king of glory, the son of God. During the course of his earthly ministry, Jesus never spelled it right out for them. He asked them occasionally, who do they say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And they were coming to understand bit by bit. But when he died, they still didn't really get it, did they? But then he rose. The Holy Spirit was gradually revealing it to them. It was a process. And now that process is complete. They see Jesus ascending to heaven. They didn't sit around and talk and say, what should we do? They knew what they should do. They worshipped him. They worshipped him. That's what they did. Second, they returned to Jerusalem with joy, it says. Last part of verse 52. After they worshipped him, it says, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. We can read it in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And then we're told on, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1 that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were still there. They were all with one accord still in one place. They did what Jesus told them to do. They went back. They waited in Jerusalem till the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 53 tells us the next thing. So they, they worshipped. They returned to Jerusalem with joy. And then verse 53, I see here, more worship and joy. And they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. When it says they were there continually, it doesn't mean they lived there. It doesn't mean they put tents there or rented rooms there or just became um, vagrants there. No, it means they were regularly there. They were there a lot. They were there at the times of assembly when Jews came together for worship. They were there at the hours of prayer. They were there constantly. Maybe there were something like Anna and Simeon back in chapter 2. Some of the time they spent in the upper room, the rest of they spent in the temple. Those were their main things, praising and worshiping God. What we see here is a transformation of the disciples. From doubt and fear on that day, those days when Jesus was in the grave, until they saw the resurrected Lord Jesus, from the doubt and fear, there's a transformation of these people to be constantly, joyfully praising their Savior. They were still in a hostile environment, Jerusalem. But they were praising and worshiping God. Calvin says their joy is contrasted with their fear, which previously kept them shut in, hidden at home. So this was another process, wasn't it? They're going from this doubt and fear in the space of these few days, and now especially to the end of the time of Jesus on earth, to this great confidence and courage and joy and constant worship that we see in the they weren't cowering in that upper room now when they they were just waiting for whatever Jesus had for them. They were they weren't afraid to go out to the temple, be with the Jews. They knew Jesus was sending something and no one was going to do anything to them till that happened at least. They were joyful, worshipful people. It's another process if you will, and now it's complete. 
They're taken from their fear and their doubt and their hesitation to this confidence and courage and joy. It's a demonstration, if you will, of the triumph of faith. Faith informed by knowledge of the truth. They understood what they didn't understand before. And now they're full of faith and they're full of joy. May I mention the contrast that is often made between this present generation and my parents' generation, what some people have called the World War II generation. Some, somebody wrote a, a well-known book called The Great, Greatest Generation, I think it was. Why, why, did they, why did that man title his book that way? Why, do, why would people talk that way? Well, because they're people who had a seriousness and a stability and resilience that by and large we don't see today. And part of the reason the people of that generation had it is because they went through the depression. If, and if you're younger and you're not sure what that means, you can Google it and find out. They went through the depression and they went through the days of World War II, the years of World War II. In those days, people would ask, what are the ways we can help our country win this war? It's not the kind of stuff we hear right now during the COVID crisis. We do hear some of it, and I'm thankful to God for that. I am. But what are the loudest voices if you just turn on your radio or you go on the internet and find either your favorite news source or your favorite uh, alternate news source? What do you find? What are all the ways the government is failing? And what are all the ways especially that everybody else is failing us? Failing me? Failing my group? Why does everybody else have everything so wrong? People talk about that difference between generations because there really, really is a stark difference. And may I say, there is a previous generation of Christians who have a spiritual seriousness and stability and resilience because they knew the Scriptures in a way that our generation by and large, does not. That's the connection between the apostles finally getting it. The Spirit has opened their eyes. They have knowledge. And it changes them. Like Paul wrote it, they're transformed by the renewing of their minds. The truth, if held in our minds, and if gazed upon, changes us. If it's truth... It changes us for the better. Too many people nowadays, Christians even, treat the Bible the way they treat their times tables, I think. Well, I don't need to learn my times tables. Well, why not? Well, because we have calculators. Got a calculator right here in my pocket. Take it with me everywhere I go. Too many Christians can't find Colossians in their Bibles because they think they don't need to. I can just open my Bible app and click and scroll. And there it is. Don't ask me to find it in the Bible. And I only say that because I don't have a problem with someone who uses an electronic device to read his Bible I just want you to read your Bible. But it's kind of a picture of a larger reality. It's an illustration that illustrates what I think is a real problem, that people not only don't know how to find Colossians, they don't know what Colossians says. 
and they don't know what Colossians teaches. That's the great danger. And that's the great crime if you're a professing Christian. And not just Colossians. There is a general ignorance of the Bible, sadly, even among God's people. And brethren, it is the knowledge of the Bible that is going to cause every change in our souls and lives for good that we want to see as Christians. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Do buy Ryle. Sell your shirt and buy Ryle if you don't have him. He says, let us leave the gospel of Luke with a settled purpose of heart to seek more spiritual knowledge every year we live. Let us search the scriptures more deeply and pray over them more heartily. Too many believers only scratch the surface of scripture and know nothing of digging down into its hid treasures Let the Word dwell in us more richly. Let us read our Bibles more diligently. If we do, we shall taste more of joy and peace in believing and shall know what it is to be continually praising God. That's the way to be continually praising God. You might ask, why am I not like that? Brethren, we should be full of joy and worship. The way that that's going to come is if you are gazing upon your Savior, crucified for you, raised for you, ascended for you. And the way to gaze upon Him is in the words of Holy Scripture. And that's my concluding point, that we should be full of joy and worship, just like the apostles were. They were full of joy, verse 52. They continued in worship, verse 53. We should do that because that's the normal Christian life. That is the way we should live. Are we going to be happy, happy, happy all the time? No. But we should always be full of an inner peace because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And we should always be able to overcome every hardship, every difficulty. You might say, well... I can understand how they would be rejoicing just on the heels of Jesus' resurrection and they're actually seeing him. I say, turn that around. We know more and better than those apostles did. We have our New Testaments. And if we knew them better and believed them more, we would be full, more full of joy and worship. And we should be full of joy and worship in every circumstance. Like Paul said, he was content. He learned to be content in whatever state he was in, even in times of trial and difficulty, even in a crisis like COVID-19. And you might say, well, how can we be joyful in this kind of circumstance? How can we be with sorrows surging round as we sing, with death shadowing us in ours? Or some people might say, how can we be joyful with the biggest deconstruction of our Western society and our constitutional liberties ever going on right before our very eyes? And no one is stopping it. Is that really how a Christian talks? Is that really how a Christian thinks? Are you thinking that way? Listen to the prophet Habakkuk. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, every outward thing is bad. Though that's the case, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. In other words, I will rejoice and I will praise God no matter what. If an Old Testament prophet could do that. And if the apostles could do that, who still were finding their way in the dark, then you can do that, Christian. 
Christ has died. Christ has risen. He has ascended and He is reigning and He is coming. And these should be the main truths that govern and influence our lives. Well, I need to close, and so let me just say something to unbelievers who are sitting here listening or sitting where you're sitting. You're not sitting here listening. One commentator says that the gospel ends with the disciples praising God. And then he asked this question, is Luke suggesting to his readers that this is the appropriate response for them to his story? I think he is. And I know that it is the appropriate response. Jesus was killed, but now he is alive. And Jesus offers from his heavenly place at the right hand of God, he offers hope and blessing and salvation to all who call upon him. Throughout this gospel, Jesus has been telling people that they need to decide where they stand. You're either with me or you're against me. Will they stand with truth and righteousness or with falsehood and wickedness? Will they stand with him and with God or with the world and by themselves? Where do you stand? It's my question for you today. Where do you stand? Today, you should bow before Jesus. You should confess your sins to him. You should trust him to save you from your sins. Maybe for the past 10 years, 200 plus sermons, you've heard preaching about Jesus, but you still have not repented and trusted him to save you. Let today be the day that you stop rejecting him. Let it be the day that you begin to worship him and rejoice in him. I pray that that will be the case. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful account of Luke, of the life and the death, and now the resurrection and ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Give us all a disposition to worship him and rejoice in him always, even in tribulation. And Father, send your Holy Spirit with power and save sinners who hear these words today and save sinners all throughout this earth who are hearing the everlasting gospel of our risen and ascended Savior, Jesus Christ, today. And we ask it in his name. Amen.